Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our new series, The Price of Victory, today with a message titled Dealing with Accusations. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 6, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. You know, it's hard to imagine doing anything of any importance without critics and enemies. Jesus had plenty of critics and enemies, and so did Paul. And if you're involved in the Lord's work, you're going to have plenty as well. But I suppose critics and accusers from without are the most easy to deal with, but critics and accusers from within are tough. It's from within the church that most harm can be done. Now, what I say next might surprise some people. The real battle is not to overcome your enemies. You know, it's good if you can, but don't get me wrong. The real battle is how we wage war against such things as lies and slander and false accusations and unproven allegations. A great many people have lashed out at others, and in the process, they lose sight of what's really at stake. I want you to think about Jesus. He's before the Sanhedrin. They're looking for a cause to hand him over to the Roman authorities so that he might be crucified. And so, in a hastily called kangaroo court, they begin to accuse him. One fellow comes forward and says, look, you know, this man said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, and that sounds like sedition. I I think he's dangerous. On and on go the accusations. Some are outright fabrications, and others, the more dangerous ones, are based on half-truths. It's a funny thing about half-truths. One half-truth plus another half-truth equals one complete lie. It's been always that way. And in the center of the controversy stands Jesus. He's not thrashing about trying to defend himself. He stands there silently. This is their hour when darkness prevails. He will wait for God, will vindicate him in due time. Does that mean we should never defend ourselves when accusations are leveled against us? Well, no. That's not what I've suggested by using the example of Jesus. I mean, Jesus knew that he had come to be crucified and that these things were being so arranged by a sovereign God. But I am saying that there's something to learn from Jesus' response. When we're being accused, we do well to reject worldly means of defense. I'll come back to that for this idea of rejecting worldly means of defense forms the heart of the passage we are about to read. In our study of 2 Corinthians 8 to 13, we've come to chapter 10. Suddenly, as we begin to read, we can see Paul is moving on to a different topic. In a way, there are three grand topics in the book of 2 Corinthians. You know, chapters 1 to 7 is tough stuff, but it's also encouraging stuff. Paul is rejoicing that whereas the Corinthians had once challenged his apostolic authority, now by God's grace, the majority of the church had repented of their sins. They had gotten right with God. They were also interested in reconciling with their apostle. And then chapters 8 and 9 are two chapters that deal with a special project. Paul has been raising money for poor Christians in Jerusalem, and initially the church had committed to giving to that project, but because of the disruption in the church, the project had been forgotten. And so Paul was writing them to renew their commitment to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And in a sense, from chapters 1 through 9, Paul has been dealing with the tough stuff of how to get a repentant church back on track, back to serving Christ fully. It's time to get back on the winning track. It's it's time to both discipline the erring and to forgive the repenting. 
It's time to remember that they have the precious treasure of the gospel in these imperfect human beings. But that's okay, says Paul. It's all to show that the power of the gospel doesn't come from us or our perfect life. It rather comes from God. It's also time to get back to being generous and thinking about others who have greater needs than we have. That's the first nine chapters. But now, very suddenly, the tone of the letter changes very abruptly. There's still a minority in the Corinthian church that are holdouts. They're not interested in repenting. Indeed, they've been influenced by false teachers who have traded in slandering Paul. And and furthermore, they're making it clear that they're not going away. These critics of Paul are interested in taking him down. They want him completely discredited. In short, they're not going to be done until Paul's ministry is ruined. Some of us are shocked that this kind of thing would have gone on in the early church. Let's be clear. Paul's enemies here are false teachers, and he knows what's at stake. If these men succeed in their battle with him, they will lead the entire Corinthian church into heresy and into turmoil. Their ministry to the wider city will crumble. And then building on their victory over Paul, they will then press their advantage to other cities. This was taking on the appearance of a bare-knuckle fight. And when things like this happen, there are a great many well-meaning but not well-informed people who only wish that all the fighting would just stop. And Paul knows that the evil one is looking to use any means to end the advance of the gospel. Now again, describing things as I just have might be shocking to some. I mean, does that kind of activity actually happen? Yes, it does. Anyone who's familiar with the history of the Christian church will tell you that much of the history of our faith has been one struggle against one heresy after another. Many of the statements of faith that form the backbone of so many of our churches arise out of the battle with heresy. As an example, many statements of faith begin with a statement about the Trinity. So why is that front and center? Well, it's because there were moments in the history of the church when powerful, well-placed, and persuasive heretics tried to argue that Jesus was no more than a created being who was elevated by the Father. Now, that kind of teaching at one time almost tore the church apart. It almost ended the preaching of the gospel. Well, how about today? Well, there are different battles that rage today. One is the denial of scriptural authority. And if you know anything about that battle, you're going to realize that the authority of the New Testament rests entirely on the authority of the apostles who wrote it. Yeah, after 2,000 years, there are still vicious, false teachers who are trying to undermine the authority of Paul. Well, that's the background. So now let's read our text. 2 Corinthians 10, 1 to 6. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble went face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness and such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. You can, if you've been following this series, hear the difference in tone. You know, up till now, Paul's been saying that he's delighted in some of the qualities found in some of the believers in Corinth. And he mentions faith and speech and knowledge and earnestness and love. 
But now the emphasis changes. So from what we've read, let's divide it into three sections. First, from verses 1 and 2, would you notice that Paul is justifying his approach when he was in Corinth last? Why was he so lacking in courage, boldness, and forcefulness in leadership? It seems like when he writes his letters, he's forceful, but when he shows up, he's nothing to behold. What we're reading here is a criticism of Paul. He's not an apostle, say his critics. Look at his demeanor. He's not even a leader. And since he's not a leader, there's no reason to follow him. And so knowing this kind of criticism is happening, Paul begins by making it very clear that he's not spoiling for a fight. He begins by saying, now look, I, Paul, myself, that is the language of presence, the language of someone who, when he walks on a stage, expects people to listen. He comes with apostolic authority, and when he comes to visit the Corinthians, he expects to do it again. He's going to come completely comfortable in his own skin, knowing what it is that God has appointed him to do. And that's important. People who know what God has called them to do and are doing it have little need to constantly meet the expectations of others. And indeed, Paul is not going to be as the false teachers insist he must be if people are going to listen to him. Instead, says Paul, I'm making an appeal to you, first, with the meekness of Christ, and second, with the gentleness of Christ. Paul's saying, I'm not behaving as you troublemakers say I must. I'm behaving with the attitude of Jesus. You know, the word meekness speaks of a calm and soothing disposition. It means moderation rather than, you know, making extreme and bombastic statements. You know, we all know there are people who are extremists in their speech, and the minute they talk, they divide people and they create anger. And in contrast, Paul says, I have a soft voice, and I have mastery over my emotions. I also came to you with gentleness. And you might hear words like reasonableness and fairness and a lack of violence in my talk. I wasn't aggressive, he says. I, I was looking for peace rather than outright hostility. And the crazy thing is, some of the false teachers read that as weakness. How sad when we imagine the only kind of leader is the one who whacks people on the back of the head and really tells them what for. And Paul says, I was never interested in acting that way. hope you've enjoyed today's Back to the Bible Canada message from Dr. John Newfeld. If you've been moved, I want to encourage you to check out our website, backtothebible.ca, for today's message and messages from past series, just in case you're not able to listen to this fine station every day. Every program, article, blog, video is available on our website for free. A key goal for Back to the Bible Canada is to offer trustworthy Bible teaching without barrier. Special thanks to all those who make this possible. And remember, ask for your free copy of Dr. John Newfeld's CD series, The Missionary God Today, as our gift to you. To know more or to partner with Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. There's a style of leadership, sadly, some pastors have thought is proper leadership. I know of one pastor who said that every once in a while he has to take on all the elders of the church so that they're under no illusions as to who's boss. Well, that same pastor also was noted that on occasion, 
he used profanity from his pulpit when he was frustrated or angry or when he believed certain members of the congregation weren't doing the right thing. Well, I don't need to tell you. There were some people who thought, ha, that's a real leader. Well, Jesus said the rulers of this world delight in lording it over others. It was not to be the same way with us, he said. He called for servanthood rather than strongman syndrome. So Paul admits it. I never played the strongman card. And then having said that, at least so it would seem, Paul seems to quote back to them a criticism that he must have heard. He says, I who am humble when face to face, but really bold when I'm writing my letters. Now, just as a note of explanation, Paul knew how to be confrontive. There is a time to take on your detractors, like we like to say, go belly to belly. Paul knows how to insist on discipline when it's called for. But Paul preferred to act in humility when he was with them. You know, it's been pointed out that in the ancient world, that is in the Greek and Roman thinking, humility was not a quality that was prized in a leader. One Roman writer wrote, the humble-witted are neither sought by their friends nor feared by their enemies. They are ever cringing to the man above them. You know, even today, there are those who argue that good leaders must have a certain ruthless quality to them. That was expected in that culture. But Paul's not trying to use acceptable cultural means of leadership. He wasn't reading the best leadership books of his day and then trying to emulate the best practices in that culture. Rather, Paul was emulating the best practices in Jesus. Jesus, who being in nature God, humbled himself to death on a cross, and Paul, following the footsteps of his master, thought it good to hold others as the object of his concern and not himself. Now, that attitude doesn't mean that Paul wasn't a leader. Indeed, he's an excellent leader. The proof of his leadership? Well, it was in the churches he had planted, filled with men and women who would gladly lay down their lives for the gospel. The proof of his leadership is that many of those who opposed him were genuinely pierced to the heart. In reality, the proof of leadership is not in how the leader behaves, but rather whether men and women are changed. Look, if you have power, you can force people into something. But if you have love, you can inwardly compel them into something, and that's better by far. So now let's go to verse 2. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. You know, whether or not Paul will be meek or quite forceful when he confronts his critics in Corinth, well, that's going to depend on his critics. In essence, he's making an appeal that even his critics will take the role of meek and humble people. You know, I've already, as we've studied 2 Corinthians, made mention that at one time, you know, when things were very bad in Corinth, Paul had made what came to be known as a painful visit. But it should be pointed out now that when things got especially painful, well, Paul had withdrawn, giving time for the heightened emotion in Corinth to settle down. That turns out to have been a very wise move. Again, you have to imagine that the false teachers saw that as weakness. Now go to verse 2. Notice Paul says that his greatest critics suspect that he's walking according to the flesh. Now, normally when we think of walking according to the flesh, I mean, we think of a person who's beset with fleshly sins. But here I think walking according to the flesh means walking in timidity, allowing fear of confrontation to frighten you. Paul's flesh is weak, his critics would say. He can't take the heat when things get rough. He was frightened. That's why he left in the middle of the painful visit. And to that, Paul responds by saying, no, I, I'm able to be confrontive. 
If that attitude among the false teachers persists, you're going to leave me with no alternative but to be as strong and as confrontive as can be. But that's the first section in our text. Paul's justifying his leadership style. Now we come to the second section, and that's found in verses 3 and 4, and Paul will give ample evidence that he's not walking according to the flesh. Look again at verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. And what we read here is a word play. Look, I'm walking in the flesh. That is, I am very aware of my own body, my own weaknesses, my own limitations. But the warfare that I'm fighting is not being waged according to or through the power of my flesh. Immediately, we see that Paul does think the present struggle with the false teachers and the unrepentant minority in the church constitutes genuine warfare. He says so. In verse 4, he will talk about destroying strongholds. And in verse 5, he's going to talk about destroying arguments. In verse 6, he's going to talk about punishing disobedience or rebellion. See, from Paul's vantage point, what's happening in Corinth is nothing short of all-out war. And Paul knows he must fight until the victory is obtained. But, says Paul, I'm not relying on my flesh to win this fight. If that's all I were doing here, I wouldn't know how this thing is going to turn out. Whose flesh, whose, whose bodily constitution and inner determination is going to be greater? Mine or yours? He could have said, well, I guess we're going to find out. But he doesn't say that, does he? Look at verse 4 again. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, Paul doesn't in this passage articulate what kinds of weapons he's talking about. But from the rest of his writings, we can be fairly certain of what he is talking about. For Paul, he relies not on the power of personality, but instead he relies on truth, honesty, integrity, justice, holiness, faithfulness. He relies on the power of prayer, for his hope is in the Lord who called him. In Ephesians 6, Paul would speak about the armor of God, and there he'd talk about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteous conduct, the shield of confident trust in the promises of God, shoes fitted with a readiness to preach the gospel at each opportunity, the sword of the Spirit's power to convict men and women of truth, the helmet of salvation, salvation from sin. It's powerful stuff, says Paul. That's why I don't have to raise my voice and shout at my enemies. I have something so powerful to resort to those tactics, that would be foolish. So to review, you know, in the first section, we saw Paul frankly admit that his stance was one of meekness and humility. In the second section, he tells us why. And now in the third section, Paul will tell us what he expects will be the outcome of his visit in Corinth. Indeed, he thinks there will be three outcomes. Outcome number one in verse 5a. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Paul says, I know it's going to happen. All the arguments that the false teachers are using are going to be utterly wrecked and left void of content. Their reasoning will come to nothing. Paul fully expects that the hollowness and the lies of the false teachers are going to be exposed. They don't have a chance of winning. After all, Paul is going to counter what is false with what is true. Outcome number two, verse 5b and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You know, the Greek word for thought can also be translated as design. It's connected to the activity of Satan. Back in chapter 211, Paul speaks about the potential of being outwitted by Satan. Paul knows that Satan has designs, plans, thoughts to deceive the Corinthian Christians. Instead, he says, we're taking every design and thought and we're examining it 
in the light of what Christ has taught us and what he's commanded us. When we examine all those thoughts and lies of the devil in the light of the truth of Christ, those diabolical designs will be taken captive and they're going to be destroyed. Outcome number three, verse six, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Paul means something very simple. After he's certain of the obedience of the majority of the congregation, he is going to punish disobedience. I think he means that he's going to excommunicate the false teachers, and then, in consequence of that, their influence in the church will be over. Paul expects to win this war. He is a leader who expects that people will follow him as he follows Christ. But Paul gives us an insight. In order to win the battle against false teachers, the way in which we fight is as important as the winning of the war. If we fight using worldly methods, we create a church that is used to using worldly methods whenever there's any disagreement in the future. That leads, might I say, to things like, yeah, the Spanish Inquisition and persecution. But if he uses methods given by the Spirit of God, well, the results are quite different. In this world of false teaching and false teachers, this is a very important for all of us to learn. We must fight the battle for truth, to be sure. But let's fight it using the weapons of humility and meekness and kindness and patience, those very weapons that God has provided. Thanks, John. You know, when I think of Paul's life, as were all the apostles, as were the church fathers, they seem riddled with life and death struggle for the gospel. Should this in some way be true of all of God's people? Well, clearly, um, some will be called upon to um, struggle more, uh, to make greater sacrifices. Uh, It depends on the era in which God has, by his divine wisdom, uh, placed us into. Um, But I think every single believer will have to say, it is not possible to serve Christ and not be on the battlefield. Uh, You are at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the world of flesh and the devil are fighting back. And so we should not be surprised if suddenly we're engaged in battle or we're being criticized or people speak ill of us uh, for the sake of the gospel. Uh, It's not as if something unusual were happening. It's happened to all the saints in the past, and so it simply gives evidence to us that we belong to that uh, august crew uh, who have fought for Christ in their day Uh, We must therefore assume that this will be our lot and that fighting is what we are about. So let's do it with love. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Price of Victory, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The central mission of the church is the Great Commission. We are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. So join Dr. John Newfeld as he walks us through a video series on missions called The Missionary God. The Missionary God is available for viewing at backtothebible.ca or on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. And we encourage you to pray for opportunities to be messengers of joy, sharing trustworthy Bible teaching that brings real hope in difficult times. 
To know more or to make a gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.